Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Luke, chapters 15, verses 1 through 10, and verse 25a. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman who has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. The word of the Lord. So because... uh... I did not properly put these texts in there. Uh, there was a little couple verses that I, I'm going to read for you. Uh, no one else's fault but mine. Um, I'm going to read for you verse 11 down to, uh, to the final verse. So Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, forgive my, or give my share. Give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the son was in the field. I hope that makes a little bit more sense in context. Um, so if you have uh, ever swam in the ocean for any extended amount of time, uh, there's an interesting phenomenon that inevitably takes place as you're swimming. Uh, you drift from where you began. So if you, you enter into the water, and before you know it, uh, you're swimming in one place, thinking that you haven't really moved much, and then all of a sudden you look up, and the waves have moved you, uh, and if you're not paying close enough attention, self-assessing, you've gotten very far away from where you began, and you can be in this place of complete disorientation, completely lost uh, as to where you began, where you started. And what's interesting about that reality is that without constant self-assessment, we inevitably will find ourselves in life lost and disoriented and kind of confused about how we ended up where we are. If we're not paying attention to the waves that are moving us, we will inevitably end up drifting. Now, if you've been with us over the course of the last several weeks, we've been in a series uh, looking at the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and in particular, what we've been trying to do is consider the ways in which we can get to know Jesus more, to not know more about him, but to really get to know him in a more personal and deep way. And today, in Luke 15, we have the opportunity to not just get to know Jesus, which we're certainly going to, but we also have the opportunity to assess where we are in relation to him right now. Right, so if he's our beginning point, where are we in relation to him? Because I'll tell you this, it can be really hard to know the person and work of Jesus without a sober and thoughtful assessment of ourselves 
and where we are in relation to him. And because self-reflection and assessment can be difficult, the goal today is to take a breath and hopefully assess where we are in relation to Jesus. Now, these stories here in Luke 15 are some of Jesus' most famous teachings and stories. Uh, And when we see what Jesus is doing through these stories, we realize that all of us here ought to see ourselves in these stories. And as a result, all of us should leave here um, challenged and confronted by what Jesus is saying. So let's get to know him a little bit better through these stories. Uh, And to do so, let me first set the stage of what we're reading, just to put a little context on it. Jesus uh, is currently surrounded by an interesting group of people, and we see that in the very beginning portions of our passage. Uh, This would be an interesting group of people at any time or place. Uh, It says here that Jesus was with tax collectors and sinners as they were drawing near to him. Now, in case that doesn't land on you uh, as being interesting, uh, it's important to know that tax collectors and sinners for the people of Israel would have been a scandalous group of people for a rabbi to be hanging out with. Uh, They absolutely were considered outsiders who cared nothing for the moral norms of the day. So you had tax collectors who were a group of people uh, who were in bed with the Roman Empire, They were Jewish men uh, given authority by the Roman government to collect taxes from Israel. And as long as the Romans got the amount that they wanted, they didn't care how much the tax collectors took on top of that for themselves. And so as you could imagine, tax collectors uh, who often had authorized state power would come and they would take whatever they wanted, often with military enforcement. And so as a result of that, the people of Israel saw them as traitors and extortioners. And throughout the New Testament, when tax collectors are mentioned, they are always referred to as one of the groups of people most despised in Israel. And then, of course, you have this other group called the sinners, quote-unquote sinners. Now, this was a, a really fluid way of describing just about anyone who would have been unseemly or would have been on the outside. They would have also been uh, those who are really part of a, a motley crew. It would have been a rough bunch of people, likely. And then, as you see here, Jesus uh, becomes this center of gravity for these people. I mean, there's no other way to put it other than Jesus was hanging out with a really unsavory bunch of people who at the time would have been avoided and judged and even looked down on by the people of Israel, right? So you've got tax tax collectors and sinners. But there's another group of people that are here. What we see in chapter, uh, in verse two rather, is that not only were there tax collectors and sinners, but also the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were there as well. Now, it's at least worth taking just a second to acknowledge who the Pharisees are because it gives a lot of context for what's happening here. See, the Pharisees were the religious conservatives of the day. Uh, And though Jesus, if you read the New Testament and the Gospels, Jesus is regularly condemning and rebuking the Pharisees, but it is worth noting that they actually weren't the bad guys. They wouldn't have been treated or viewed as bad guys. They would have actually been treated as uh, the most religious among the day. 
Now this, in comparison to the other group of people that we read quite a bit about in the New Testament, which who would be the Sadducees. So the Sadducees, in contrast to the Pharisees, they were the liberal wealthy elites who would have questioned really central core doctrinal things. So they would have questioned and even rejected uh, miracles. They would have rejected the idea of a resurrection from the dead. They didn't really believe in any kind of afterlife. And so you had the Sadducees, who would have been the liberal elites. They would have been the, the Manhattanites, the New Yorkers, who would are questioning everything, the skeptics of the day. And then you had the Pharisees, who, were, who believed in miracles. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in an afterlife that then, and that one's present circumstances today and the things that we did today dictated the afterlife. They were the devout religious conservatives. They would have been middle America, I don't know, just the, the, the religious conservatives who, who cared deeply about their central core doctrine being corrupted. Now, this matters because in the context of these stories, the rest are, in the context, these stories find a f- very familiar, I think, kind of social, cultural milieu. It's, it's, it should be a setting that we recognize, the big battle between the conservatives and the liberals. And here, in the story, for the people, the Pharisees would have been the good guys. They would have been those most committed to central core doctrine. They would have been the good Christian types. Now, they considered themselves to be pure and righteous. And I draw this out because the context, in, the con- in this context, Jesus' words become extraordinarily applicable to a very wide range of people. So wide that I don't know that we necessarily see how applicable Jesus' words to all these different pockets of people that would have been listening in on today because in this setting, Jesus gives his most famous, some of his most famous parables. He talks about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. And so what I want to do, I want to take a look at the message of these stories and see how each of these messages, each of the messages from the stories, is a message to several groups of people. It is to the lost, it is to the found, and that ultimately it's a message to us all. Right? So let's look at that quickly, those three. First, a message to the lost. It's obvious in each of these parables, uh, you see something that has obviously been lost. You have a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. Now, it's important to know first, we'll take a look at this sheep analogy that Jesus gives. It's important to know that often when we think about uh, the sheep and the shepherd, You can imagine, I think that drums up certain images that we've seen maybe painted, images that have been created over the years. It's kind of a beautified term, but it's important to know that the Lord being our shepherd and we being his sheep could actually be taken as kind of an offensive thing in context here. What I mean by that is one, shepherds were not treated with very high regard at all. In fact, they were often viewed as dirty and smelly, and they existed outside the center of things because their entire lives revolved around the fields and around the flock. Now, we've said this a hundred times over this series, but we can't miss that when God calls himself a shepherd, it's important to recognize that God is identifying himself with someone who would have been treated as an outsider, 
So yes, Jesus is this king, he is this ruler, but he's also a shepherd. Jesus is one who left glorious riches in heaven, came and identified himself as a dirty, smelly shepherd. Important to note that. Another thing about this analogy, though, is, of course, then you have the sheep. Everyone knows that sheep are dumb. And no shade to sheep, but they tended to wander off, completely oblivious to the danger that awaited them out in the wilderness. They were too stupid to know what they were doing. Now, for some, that might be semi-offensive because we're called sheep. But here we have... And the other thing that's interesting, you have a shepherd who, when seeing these dumb sheep wander off, it's important to know that the shepherd had every right to say, if you're too stupid to know that you should stay near me and near the flock, so be it. I don't have time to wander off after you. I've got 99 other sheep I need to take care of. Good riddance. But here's what's beautiful about Jesus Here's what's beautiful about him as our shepherd. The beauty of Jesus is that no sheep, no matter how dumb, is worth saving. Or all sheep, rather, no matter how dumb, is worth saving. And some of us right now, as we read these stories, some of us here, I think it's safe to say, have wandered off. We've wandered off into the wilderness, and by all measure, this shepherd ought to say, good riddance. It's your fault that you have wandered off. I don't have time to chase after you. And if that is you, and you identify with the sheep who has wandered off into the wilderness in some way, Jesus as our shepherd will not allow us to wander off. If we are his, he will chase after us. For as verse 7 tells us, there is no greater joy in heaven than when that one sheep is rescued, even more so than the 99 who never wandered off. Then you have the other story that Jesus tells in the second parable. He's, there's this story of a woman who lost a coin. Now, this woman had uh, 10 silver pieces. She loses one. This amount would have represented about seven to, day, seven to 10 days uh, worth of wages. Uh, and commentators note that it's likely all that this woman had. It's also important to know that women were marginalized in this culture. And on top of that, she was obviously poor. I want us to, again, just recognize that Jesus is identifying himself with a marginalized poor woman. God always identifies himself with those on the outside, not on the inside. But she lost her coin, a coin that was incredibly valuable to her. And so she lights a lamp. And she takes this lamp and she tears the house apart until she's able to find the coin. Now, as you can imagine, in this scenario, there is urgency for her. And there's a diligence to find that lost coin. Failure was not an option. She would not rest until she finds it. Sure, she had nine other coins, but unless she found this one lost coin, she would not rest. Now, for some of us here... Maybe you are like this lost coin. You are lost and you find yourself in some dark corner, not even really sure how you got to that darkness. And you have no means by which to bring yourself into the light in order to be found. You want to be found, but you know that you are too far gone. 
It's important to know that one thing that Jesus is saying here is that his eyes are not fixed on the nine coins. His eyes are fixed on that one coin. His eyes aren't even fixed on the countless riches that are to come for him once again when he is ruling and reigning on his throne. Rather, his eyes aren't set on riches. His eyes are set on finding that one lost coin in the darkness somewhere. And as verse 10 tells us, there's more joy in heaven when that one coin is found instead of the nine that are safe in the coin purse. And then, of course, you have that final story. The third story of the parable of the prodigal son and the lostness in this story is amplified all the more. In this parable, you have the prodigal son uh, who was the spoiled, entitled child. A child who cares nothing about anything but except what he could take from his father. That's all he cared for. And ironically, as the son of a wealthy man, the son already had everything available to him. And yet what we see in the story is that even though everything was available to him as the son of this wealthy man, he wants his inheritance. Why? Because he wants the wealth of his father, but he doesn't want his father. Now, if you were here with us last week, we mentioned how central that family was in, the, um, in ancient times, in ancient Eastern cultures. And so what you're seeing here is a son showing remarkable disrespect to his father. The father would have experienced an immense amount of shame as a result of his son's despicable dishonor. And again, I don't want you to miss that God is, while he's essentially describing himself as a father, God in this parable is identifying himself with a disgraced father. Again, a father on the outside, a father not on the inside. And I continue to bring this up because time and time again, Christians must see themselves and must not desire uh, to be at the center. They must realize that at the center, as we seek to be at centers of power, we are likely sprinting away from where God is most identifying himself. But back to the story. Of course, we likely know the story of the prodigal son. That this son, he goes off and he spends his inheritance on debaucherous living, only adding to the shame of his father. Eventually, he runs out of money. He seeks to return to his father. But this time, not as a son, he knows what he's done. And so he doesn't desire to come back as a son, but just hopes that his father would receive him as a servant. The father, however, if you know the story, when he sees his son returning, he does not make his son pay penance. He doesn't seek to shame or disrespect his son, but rather, if you read the story, he's overflowing with joy. There's this huge feast to celebrate the return of this son. And so again, I ask, maybe as you read these stories, you're the lost son. Maybe you have become lost because you have been uh, living in a way that has brought shame and guilt to yourself and even to those that you love. You know, have you made mistakes, done things, 
so wrong that you feel as though you can't make amends before God. You're just too far gone, too ashamed to come to him. Hear the story that the Father is awaiting and receiving with overflowing joy the one who returns to him. The Father longs for the Son to return. I mean, what we must see in Luke 15, in these three stories, is that Jesus is making abundantly clear specifically to the tax collectors and the sinners, those who are obviously far from him, that, he, that they are loved, that they are cherished, and that he is in pursuit of them. These stories were for that group of people. But there's another group of people that are hearing these stories, right? Because there's a group of people who would have viewed themselves as the found, those who were not lost, those who would have been more at the center. There's a message to the found. That other group of people, of course, we've just said, is the Pharisees. And look at verses 2 and 3. It's important to note who Jesus is telling these stories to. It says in verses 2 and 3, but the, uh, the, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Verse 3 says, then Jesus told them this parable. It's important to know Jesus is telling the story not directly to the tax collectors and sinners. He's telling these stories to the good, moral, conservative Christians of the day. He's talking to those who would have viewed themselves as found because it says that they grumbled at the fact that Jesus was with all these sinners, that he was soft on these sinners. Uh, One of my favorite theologians, uh, Justo Gonzalez, who's actually a church historian, he wrote a book called Santa Biblia, which is, uh, of course, just means Holy Bible. But the book itself um, is a description of how, from the Hispanic American perspective, one interprets the Bible differently than those who maybe are more at the center, right? So more of a dominant culture will inevitably interpret the Bible differently than those on the margins. And so he wrote about this story in particular— from the perspective of those on the margins. And this is what he said about this story. The three parables are not originally addressed to the lost, but to those who feel left out because Jesus is eating with the lost, to those who have never been lost. He is not speaking to the one sheep, but to the 99 that the shepherd leaves in the wilderness in order to look for the one. He is not speaking to the lost coin that the woman searches. Uh, he's not speak, I'm sorry. He's not speaking to the lost coin that the woman searches for until she finds it, but to the nine that remain safely in her purse. He is not speaking to the prodigal son who has gone to a distant country, but to the elder who has been serving his father all these years. In short, Jesus is not speaking to the margins, but to the center. So, yes, these stories that Jesus is telling, they're they're for the sinners, the tax collectors, those on the outside. But even more so, these stories are for the religious who assume themselves to be at the center of God's favor. And as we uh, have said time and time again, God's vision is always directed toward those who do not find themselves or view themselves as being at the center, but rather those on the outside. And ironically, these stories 
are told to those who believed they are found. He is telling the story to those who look down on others who are obviously lost. He is telling the story to those who have absolutely no urgency whatsoever to being part of finding those who are lost. And here's the paradox of this this whole story in Jesus' way of telling it. If you are here and you find yourself in the flock, if you find yourself or believe yourself to be in the coin purse, if you see yourself as faithfully working out in the field, Jesus is saying you might not be as actually found as you assume yourself to be. You might very well have drifted away from me, not even realizing that you've done it. You might find yourself amongst God's people and yet not actually be part of God's people. And for one reason, more than likely, this is the reason, often that is the case, is that too often the Pharisees, Religious conservatives, those who can point to their goodness and their morality, too often think they got themselves into the flock, into the purse, into the field, and that maybe God helped get them there, but you've worked hard to stay there. And if those other people, those lost people, would just get it together, they could do the same. Now, let me give you, um, as a pastor, uh, I do a lot of inevitably do a lot of counseling, um, but let me give you a little insight into what happens in my counseling sessions. Um, my entire Christian life, I have assumed myself to be part of the 99, part of the nine coins, the elder brother. I certainly would never have identified myself as a tax collector and sinner, for sure. And for most of my Christian journey, I never would have assumed myself to be uh, a Pharisee. Because uh, if you've grown up in church, you know you're supposed to look down on the Pharisees. You look down on the hypocrisy. We are not discipled or encouraged to see ourselves as a Pharisee. And what's interesting about my own journey is that while I would never would have believed, or at least articulated, that my good work saved me, I definitely believed that they kept me in favor with God. I definitely believe that there was some kind of correlation between my goodness and God's blessing for sure. Assumed myself to be able to work hard enough to stay in the center of God's favor. And this is literally the scenario of the prodigal son in particular. So the reason why I put verse 25 in there is that it's important for us to know that the older brother, the entire time that the younger brother was out living crazy, he was faithfully working in the field. While the other brother partied it up, spending everything he had, the younger brother never left. He stayed faithful, which is why, if you again, when you read the story, when the father welcomes the son home, the younger son, the older brother flips out. He is furious because he had done it right. He never left. He lived the way that he was supposed to. Why would the younger brother get all of the attention? You know, for him, in other words, it was certainly, Father, I did A, B, and C for you. Now I deserve X, Y, and Z. And I can tell you for sure, I have functionally treated God that way over the course of my Christian life. 
I would imagine for any of you here that have been a Christian for any length of time, you too maybe have fallen into that same kind of scenario. And you know, one of the best ways, I think, it's been one of the best ways for me to assess whether or not I'm actually one of the Pharisees is for me to think about this question. What do I think about the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost brother? Do I assume myself to be a little bit better than them because I'm doing it right? And maybe even a more pointed question, and this one's probably been even more striking for me, what responsibility do, have I felt to those that are on the outside, the tax collectors and the sinners, so to speak? You know, one of the striking things about the parable of the prodigal son is that the older brother should have felt some kind of urgency to go after his brother. He should have had some desire to bring his father back, and yet he's in the field, apathetic to this brother who's lost, working hard to prove his goodness because he desires to get what is owed from him or to him by his father while his brother wastes away. And I'll admit that at times that has certainly been me, apathetic, to the plight of those who are lost, uninterested in leaving the continual uh, working hard and diligence of just being good. And if any of us here find yourself in that same kind of scenario, those stories are for us, most primarily for us, the Pharisees. So you have Jesus telling this story to two groups of people, those who are lost those who assume themselves to be found. But here's what's really interesting and beautiful about this story, finally, that this message is a message to all of us. And so I want to just pose this question. Where do you see yourself in the story? There's a bunch of things going on here. All right, so you have Jesus. I hope you don't see yourself there. You have the lost. Maybe some of us are there. We have the found. Maybe there's some of us genuinely legitimately like killing it with a Christian life, and you are absolutely in the 99, the 9, and the good, a good elder brother. Maybe that's where you might find yourself. Or, but maybe some of us were the Pharisee, assuming ourselves safe because of our good, righteous deeds. But now we find ourselves confronted by Jesus because maybe it's been our righteousness that's caused us to wander away from him. And so I wonder... Where do you see yourself in the story? Now, as I've said, I see myself most naturally a Pharisee. It's very easy for me to find myself there, to wander into that territory. But regardless of where you find yourself in the story, there's one message that is here that is for all of us. Because, see, at this point, the only message that I've given to you is don't be lost and don't be a jerk if you feel like you aren't lost. But that's not much of a message for any of us. It's, in fact, only half of the story of what's being told here. The message, the ultimate message of Luke 15 is that everyone in the story needs to understand and embrace and believe in a work of grace that we too often don't embrace like we should. Regardless of where you are in the story, it's that single message that is here. If you are truly lost and wandering in rebellion. This message is for you, 
grace. For it is by grace that Jesus, our good shepherd, is in pursuit of you right now. If you are the Pharisee, having wandered off by your righteousness, the message for you is grace. For by grace you are welcomed, not by your goodness, but by the goodness of Jesus. And you know what? If you are actually in the flock, if you are actually safe in the coin purse, the message to you is grace. For it is grace alone that keeps you safe and secure in that flock, in that coin purse. By his grace, you are secure, nothing else. And as soon as we forget this grace, the grace meaning that we do not deserve anything that we have, but it's only because of Jesus that we have everything that we are given, it's only when we forget that grace that we begin to wander. And how do we know that Jesus is who he says he is? It's because it's important for us to not only see who we are in this, these stories, it's important for us to continually make clear who Jesus is in all of these stories. See, Jesus is not just the shepherd, but Jesus is also the lamb who was slain for us, the sheep who wandered off. Jesus is not just the poor woman. He's also that lamp, the light of the world who illuminates the darkness in order that that coin might be found. Jesus is our perfect older brother, the truly righteous and good one who goes off in search of his lost brother. It's this Savior who is calling us to himself. It is this Savior whose grace is sufficient for us. And when we remember and recall and embrace that grace, it's then that we find ourselves safe and secure in that 99 and in that coin purse. It's where we can find the kind of security and freedom that we maybe have desired. And so my question again to you would be, where do you find yourself in the story? And how, as a result, do you need to take this grace and apply it to your heart, see it for the beauty that it is, that we might find ourselves again safe and secure with our Savior? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of great mercy and grace. We thank you that you are a God who in your Son is pursuing us. Think often about what it means for you to be in pursuit of us. It means that we are constantly finding ourselves wandering from you. And sometimes we're wandering from you in rebellion and sometimes we are wandering from you by caring more about our righteousness and our diligence, working hard, than we do about loving you. And so, God, I may pray that you'd make plain and clear to us the ways that we've wandered, that your grace might call us again home. And, Lord, I also pray that we would, like our Savior, care much for those who find themselves lost, that we would be... Um, coming alongside the work that Jesus, by his Spirit, is doing, that we might care for those who are far from you, that we might bring hope to them as we bring your gospel to them. Challenge us with these things, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.